Uh, it's such a privilege to be with you today. I honestly mean it. It's, every time that I'm invited to come and worship with you, Reality Carp, it's really something special. Uh, the spiritual lineage and faithfulness uh, that's represented here. You know, like this is the, the birthing place of so much that God has done globally in, in your little surf town. And uh, I'm just so honored to be able to come and give back and to bless you and just some small token of the way that you guys have blessed us as a church in Stockton and, and the rest of the Reality family. Uh, we are really, really grateful. And I'm really grateful to be able to share from the word of God today, because if I could be honest, um, I know, I'm not sure what else I can give to you in a year like 2020. <laughs> like, I, I can't give you predictions for next year. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not really good with finances, so I can't really speak into the economic crisis. Uh, I'm not a great counselor. So today I'm just going to stand on the authority of God's word, and I hope that's okay for you today. And I want to share from a passage that is probably familiar, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have your Bible, please turn there. I'm going to be uh, reading and preaching from the, the ESV, 1 Kings 19. I believe it's actually printed out in your bulletin as well. I'll give you just a moment to get there. First Kings 19, I'm going to read sort of a longer passage. We're going to go verses 1 through 18. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. So he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake <laughs> baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Heziel, the king of Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Japheth, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jezeel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. And, and I thank you, Lord, that you are speaking to us today. That you are present and that you are just as present right now in this very moment as you were with Elijah. And we could maybe even argue that you are even all the more present because of the indwelling of your Holy Spirit and the gift of your body, the church gathered. And so Lord, we we pray in this moment, would you give us faith? Give us faith and trust that you are with us, that you are for us and that you go before us, that you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We collectively say, we trust you, God. We trust you. We come to receive from you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is throughout religious and spiritual history, there's a tradition that appears among many cultures in many places throughout the world and really throughout time. And it's the search for these places that are called thin places. Thin places are the locations where people believe that the distance between earth and heaven come uncommonly close where you know the the divide or that that veil between the divine and the ordinary gets so thin that they touch thin place and there are examples throughout the world of these places that are believed to be thin places um saint brigid's kildare saint peter's the vatican the uh, the celtic uh monastery of iona iona the wailing wall of israel and so on and throughout time Men and women have made these long pilgrimages traveling to these places in order to experience a divine, you know, transforming touch of the divine in their life, to get answers to life's biggest questions, to, to really speak to them in, in these confusing moments of their lives and really to experience spiritual breakthrough when they need it most. Now, I spoke at a, a retreat at a monastery uh, years ago, it was it was what I believed to be this very sacred place, a, a place that I thought would maybe be a thin place. It was away from the city. It was very quiet. And there was this time given to intentional silence. And so we all went and scattered and find, found quiet places. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm in a monastery, for goodness sake. Th- th- this is a sacred place. For sure, God has something special for me right now. For sure. Like the the situation is just right for God to speak to me. And minutes went by and more minutes went by. 
I'm looking off in the distance. I see you know, an individual on their little grassy knoll up there. Thinking, maybe, the, maybe God's directing his you know, breakthrough over there. What, what, do I, what do I need to do to experience it here? Was there like a, ch- was there like a chant? I, I like came late. I missed the chant. What, what happened? See, sometimes the breakthrough doesn't come. Sometimes the breakthrough simply doesn't come, or at least not like we expected. Uh, a travel writer from the New York Times wrote an article about these thin places. And what I loved about this article is about, it was really about like how painfully honest he was when it came to these, these thin places. And, and, and he mentions that people you know, travel across the world, spend thousands of dollars traveling to come to these places and sometimes never really experience what they hope to experience. And he says, you know, travel to thin places does not necessarily lead to anything as grandiose as a spiritual breakthrough, whatever that means. But listen to these words. But he says, but it does disorient. It confuses us. We lose our bearings and we find new ones. Either way, we are jolted out of old ways of seeing the world. And this is exactly where we find Elijah here in, in 1 Kings 19. He has traveled to what he believed would be a thin place, a place where he could experience that transforming touch of God in his life on the mountain of God. But instead, he finds himself really in this long season, this long disorienting season in the wilderness, losing his bearings and finding new ones. Now, it's worth noting that our text begins with Elijah moving in a particular direction and that it ends with him coming back. That's really important. It begins with him going that way. It it ends with him returning. We meet Elijah determined to give up. He's ready to give up. He's running from the life that he's been given. He's, He's leaving behind even his closest companion. But at a certain point, we're told that he's redirected And he comes back this changed person with this like renewed purpose and renewed vision for life. And and I believe the wilderness has a vital part to play in Elijah's process of formation. And I believe for us today as well, the wilderness has a vital part to play in our formation, in our process of the Holy Spirit shaping us into the likeness of God's son, Jesus Christ. Now, some of us may find ourselves in a very similar place today. This, for so many people, is a wilderness moment. Can I get an amen? Amen. Discouraged by what life feels like right now. Frightened to to, to begin to imagine what 2021 is going to bring. Like, maybe some of you have given, given yourself over to despair. Maybe some of you have given yourself over to disappointment and that sense of isolation and aloneness and just dread. What the scriptures show us is that God meets us in those very disorienting wilderness moments. God is present in those moments. God is present in this moment. And, and what the scriptures show us is that God meets us, but he doesn't meet us on our own terms. It's very interesting. It's like almost everything that Elijah expects, God's like, no, that's not how it works. God meets us in our our moment of difficulty. He meets us in our our moment of need. He meets us in our brokenhearted mess. He meets us even in our sinful rebellion. He meets us with everything we need exactly when we need it most. But here's the deal, guys. He does not meet us on our own terms. 
He does not meet us in the way that we expect he should. And we know this because Elijah's in the wilderness and no one would choose the spiritual wilderness for themselves. No one goes into the spiritual wilderness and says, this is how I want to experience God. God meets us, but not on our own terms. And when he draws near to us, he does so to to strengthen us, to speak to us, and to send us. Those are my three points today. God strengthens, God speaks, God sends. Can you still hear me in the back? All right. Let's begin with God strengthens. God strengthens. I want you to begin to, to, to think through this question. Have you ever allowed something to cloud your vision and to consume your life? Have you ever let a bad situation convince you that there's absolutely nothing good happening in your life right now to eclipse everything else? I have to imagine that 2020 has been filled with all sorts of experiences like this. I know I have experienced that this year. Even sometimes the smallest thing becomes so overwhelming and begins to eclipse everything else in my life. And we know from this passage that this is the experience of Elijah as well. In the very prior chapter, chapter 18, we read that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Now that is not a trivial phrase. That can't be said of everyone. The hand of the Lord was upon Elijah. And what we read in these previous chapters is that God worked miraculously through this man to confound the priests of Baal, to call down fire on the altar at this great like showdown of the gods. He worked powerfully. We also read that that, that through Elijah's prayers, this long, years-long drought was ended as he called down rain upon this dry land. There was this long spiritual lineage that God had formed through his life. So many, so many times that he could look back and say, God was there and God was there and God was there and God was there. And yet immediately he forgets. Immediately he's blinded. And he falls into this this pit of self-loathing. What I love about this is the only way that the author of 1 Kings would know about this is if Elijah was honest about it. There were no eyewitnesses, just Elijah's raw, honest testimony. I was in the pit of self-loathing. And he says, I've had enough. I'm literally, I'm over it. My life is over. Now, don't get me wrong. Jezebel was a fierce individual and her threats were not empty. We read about this lady in in the scriptures. She is not just like some figure that barks a lot. She is a fierce individual. And this is obviously not just a little hiccup in his life or a, a mild altercation. She wanted him dead by the close of business tomorrow. But regardless of the degree of the threat, the point is this that Elijah allowed her, Elijah allowed his circumstance to eclipse his view of God. He allowed something fierce but smaller to eclipse the vastness of his infinite Lord who had proved himself over and over again powerful in Elijah's life. And at this point in Elijah's mind, his best option is to simply give up and run away. Look at me again in verse four. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. It's over. Just, just, just end it, God. At times, believers, at times believers can experience a feeling toward God that is perhaps more hopeless than simply flat out unbelief. I hear a lot of people, especially this year, saying things like, you know, I couldn't imagine not believing in God. I couldn't imagine navigating a year like this and not believing that God is in control and behind all these things. That may be true. But I think what is actually sometimes more painful is the belief that there is a God and he just doesn't really like you. I don't think the most painful thing is to just live without you know, with some thought that there's no existence of God, the most painful thing is to know that there's a God in control and that he's just simply not that good. Or he's good, but to everyone else but me. Sometimes like Elijah, it is actually more heartbreaking to know there's a God. Sometimes it's actually more painful to believe. And what we see here is Elijah didn't lose his faith per se. He just stopped believing that God is good and God cares for him. Now, there's this scene, a very disturbing scene from the movie Fight Club, where Brad Pitt's Tyler is trying to teach Edward Norton's character, character, he doesn't have a name, this, this, this lesson through this gruesome process of putting, you know, like chemical on his hand through a chemical burn, and he's holding on to him and he's not letting go. And he says these haunting words to him. He says, our fathers were our models of God. If our fathers bailed, what does that tell you about God? Listen to me. You have to consider the possibility that God doesn't like you. He never wanted you. In all probability, he hates you. We are God's unwanted children. So be it. Painfully honest words that maybe represent many of our feelings, subconscious feelings towards God today. See, because Elijah knows that he can't escape the reality that God is real. He knows enough. He's seen too much to to think that God isn't real. And because he can't escape the reality and, and really the pain that's caused by that knowledge, life has lost its meaning. He can't, he can't even, he knows he can't escape God. So he just says, just, you might as well end it. But now isn't God's response to him so interesting? Elijah says, there's no getting out of this one. There is absolutely no hope for me now. There is no way forward. And then God sends an angel with baked goods. You can't make this up. He's essentially saying that there's this fierce queen who's got a hit out on me. She's sending an army to kill me. You better do something extraordinary. And he awakens to like the ancient version of an easy bake oven. I can't help but see the irony. Here's the irony. Elijah is asking 
for God to take radical measures to end his life, God is taking simple measures to sustain it. And the very thing that Elijah needed in that moment was not for God to take his life or to do anything extraordinary for that matter. He needed to eat, to drink, and rest for the journey ahead of him. He, like us today, in our wilderness moment as well, needed God to supply him with the strength to simply continue. This is conquering in the kingdom of God. Here it is. Perseverance. Pressing on. But how? How does he strengthen Elijah? How does he strengthen us? It says through a message from God to arise, which I may be looking too far into this, but as a Christian, I hear resurrection language. And I'm reminded that sometimes it takes nothing less than the same spirit of God that rose, raised Christ from the dead to get me on my feet when I'm self-loathing. A message to arise, bread, and water. We have to be willing to see God not just in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary. Word, bread, water. We cannot be so consumed by expecting a spiritual breakthrough that we miss the living presence of God faithfully ministering to where we are in the simplest of things. Even sometimes forfeiting the presence and grace and ministry of God because we're expecting something else. You realize that this is what we're doing right now as we gather as the church. We're being strengthened. God is providing. We come to receive what is known as the ordinary means of grace. The word, scriptures being read and preached, the sacraments, the Lord's table when Amazon sends the shipment in time. (laughs) Baptism, word, bread, water. And I got to be honest, in a year like this, where we've experienced so many obstacles up north to gathering, sickness, restrictions, weather, smoke. Never Never have I seen so much smoke in my life. So many restrictions. And I realize how much I've taken for granted the ordinary means of God's grace to strengthen the souls of his people. Now, in the meantime, don't forget that God meets Elijah alone in a cave. So what that means is seasons of social distance, seasons of quarantine, seasons of going back into stay-at-home orders that go into effect tonight at midnight, by the way, can actually be seasons of spiritual connection where God meets with his people. For the Christian, we are never, ever truly alone. God strengthens. You guys still with me? Well, let me know then. Secondly, God speaks. God speaks. Look at me again in verse eight. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Now, Elijah travels 
through the wilderness toward a very specific mount, uh, mountain. This is not a haphazard journey. He is, he's got his sight set on a specific place. And the underlying idea here is that Elijah thinks that he's got to go somewhere, somewhere very specific to hear from God. And what's so significant about this location is Horeb is just another name for another mountain we read about in scriptures called Mount Sinai. It's where God met with Moses and gave these like things. You ever heard of it? The Ten Commandments? Like a very specific place here. And so what we can gather from the story of Elijah is that he's in such a desperate place in his life that he felt like the only way that he's going to make it out of his predicament alive was to meet on the very mountain that Moses met with God. What is Elijah doing? He's doing what we often do. He's trying to recreate a past experience. Surely, if I can catch a glimpse of what Moses saw those many years ago, then I too will be able to walk off that mountain with confidence in the power and presence of God to face my challenges as well. Now what the commentators point out, what should have taken like two weeks, 14, maybe maybe even 20 days by foot, ends up turning into a 40-day ordeal. I think that's significant because that 40, that, that number I think means something. I think the, 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 the biblical writer here is trying to draw out a point for us. And what's interesting is that the reason that Israel wandered in that same wilderness for 40 years was so that an entire unbelieving generation would die out before the children of Israel came into Israel. And it seems that like that 40 years of wandering in, in, in the wilderness, God intended for a portion of Elijah to die during his journey in the wilderness as well. But this time, not an unbelieving generation, but rather an unbelieving expectation. And it's not Elijah that needs to die. It's his expectations that need to die. And so he's right about one thing. God does bring him into the wilderness to die but not ultimately die, but to die to himself. And what that means for us in our wilderness moment, what it means is that we need to be asking this question, God, what in me needs to die as well? What, what unbelief, what, what ungodly expectation, what wayward thought, what unforgiveness, what bitterness in my heart are you desiring to crucify so that I can further experience your resurrection life? The C.S. Lewis put it, that which in us that does not die will ever be raised. Things got to die before they're raised. Look at me in verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine traveling 40 days on foot to meet with God? And the first thing that he speaks when you get there is, what are you doing here? Isn't that like God? Like Elijah's like, God, what are you doing? And God's like, Elijah, can I ask you, what are you doing? Why are you here? And he lays out his case in verse 10. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. I'm going to add some theatrics here, but I, I just hear, I just hear it in his voice. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, 
For the people of Israel have forsaken you, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets by the sword. And I, even I, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. It's just you and me now, God. They've all forsaken you. But you still got me. I think one of the surest ways to increase despair and one of the surest ways to increase overwhelm is to think that you are the only one. I'm the only one that suffers like this. I'm the only one that really knows what it's like. I'm the only one to remain faithful to God in these trying times. I'm the only one that knows how God should be at work in this world. I and I alone. I love it. In just a moment, God's going to be like, actually, you're one of 7,000, but okay, right. And so God says to him, come here, I want to show you something. Verse 11 and 12, and behold, the Lord passed by and, and a great and strong wind torn the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in it. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord, uh, but, uh, sorry, and after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Isn't that interesting? All the things that Elijah had expected, this mountain demolishing wind blows through. That's what I'm talking about, God. A rumbling earthquake that shakes the ground. All right, we're moving in the right direction. A fierce sight, a fire. All right. And then in this very strange clarification, the Bible says, yeah, God wasn't in it. That wasn't God. Now, I, I honestly don't know what to do with that <laughs> other than just to trust God was not in it. Elijah wanted earth, wind, and fire. Sounds like something my dad would be listening to. Do you remember the 21st night of September? Okay. But instead, what does he get? He gets God's voice. This is important. He wants the earth. He wants the fire, the wind. He gets something better. He gets the ultimate revelation of God, God's word. Verse 12 and 13, And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, and behold, there came a voice to him. So it turns out what Elijah needed most was not to see a miracle. What he needed most was to hear the kind, comforting, life-giving word of God. Why? Because faith doesn't come by seeing. But as Romans 10 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I need to see you, God. God says, I'll do you one better. I'll speak to you. I'll speak to you. This is where we discover the explosive power of God that defeats our enemies. It's the word of Christ. As Romans tells us, it's the power of God unto salvation. Dunamis, it's the dynamite of God. The gospel. The gracious whisper of God's word. Now it's really interesting. The wind, the earthquake, and the fire, these are all pictures of God's power displayed specifically in judgment. When God shows up in earth, wind, and fire, he's there to judge. And Elijah knows this. Elijah's request is very specific. Elijah's not just looking for a display of God's raw power. He's looking for judgment on his enemies. And he needs to be reminded at this very moment, or at least he thinks he needs to be reminded 
that if need be, God can still throw down. But what he's ultimately forgotten is that if God starts throwing down, then we all deserve to go down. And there's no one worthy to escape the whirlwind when God shows up in earth, wind, and fire. See, hundreds of years later, God would come down in earthquake and wind and fire to judge. But it wouldn't be directed at his enemies. It would be directed rather at his own son, Jesus Christ, the word of God who took on flesh to dwell among us. And the gospel writers tell us about another mountain where the ground shook and the rocks broke open, but this time it wasn't Mount Horeb or Sinai. It was a mountain called Golgotha. And the judgment for sin that we deserve to receive came down on Jesus in order to deliver us from our fierce enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And there's this beautiful pattern that we see repeated throughout the scriptures. In Exodus, we're told that Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock when God passes by in power. And again here in 1 uh, Kings 19, Elijah's hidden in the cleft of the rock when God passes by in power. And we too, through faith, are placed in the rock, Jesus Christ, as God passes by in power. And when God calls us now into his presence, into his fierce, holy presence, the cloak that we cover ourselves in, so that we can stand in the, in the presence of such a powerful God are the robes of Jesus' righteousness. We are hidden in Christ through faith. Amen? Amen? Jesus got the earthquake. Jesus got the wind. Jesus got the fire so that you and I could get the just, gentle whisper of the gospel. And this is why this Connection is so important for us to remember today. It means that we no longer need to search for extraordinary signs that God cares about us. We don't need to search for extraordinary signs to be reminded that God is powerful and that he's present with us in really difficult moments. It means that we don't need for things to return to normal to then be consoled and reminded that God is in control of all of this. He has already proven it through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The powerful display is Jesus. And he stands in victory. And he is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all of this with the promise to return, to make all things new. And so what that means is that we don't now, we don't need to travel the world to find places where he will then reveal himself to us. He has revealed himself to us ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ, the word. He's the one that we celebrate this Christmas season. And he's speaking to us through the scriptures. You want to hear God speaking to you? Open up your word. You want to hear God speak to you audibly? Read it out loud. And he continues to minister to us and speak to us through the Holy Spirit, the whisper of God's love, the the whisper of God's affirmation, the whisper of his care, the one whom Jesus described as the comforter who is with us wherever we go, which means he is the one that turns ordinary places into thin places, which means this moment, this place right here is no less sacred than the wailing wall in Israel. Because God is with us. I guess I have one more point. (laughs) 
And it's this, God sends. God sends. I'll keep this brief. What's interesting to me is that although God is drawing Elijah out of his despair, it wasn't going to be through coddling him. God doesn't coddle uh, Elijah, nor does he affirm his rants. But he redirects him by speaking truth into his life. He confronts his misunderstandings and his wayward expectations by reminding him of, of a few important things. And so I want to close with these, these three timeless truths that God uses in order to draw Elijah out of this place of despair and then send him back in power. First, he reminds Elijah that I have given you purpose. What God says to Elijah is essentially, I have given your life purpose. Look at me again in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Heziel, the king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. I find this fascinating. Our moment of being out of commission is God's very moment of recommissioning us. Elijah says, I'm over. It's, it's over. My life is done. My time is spent. And God says, I have the final word. It's over when I say it's over. How dare you, Elijah, say it's over before it's over. In a season of struggle, in a season of heartache, in a season of setbacks, whether that means personally, as a family, or even as a church, God is preparing your hands for future anointing to carry the mantle and to continue the faithful spiritual lineage that God formed in you years ago. The future is bright, church. The future is bright. Why? Because God is with us. Secondly, he reminds Elijah, my plan is bigger than you. Look at me in verse 16. And Elisha, now this is his apprentice, Elisha, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Sometimes the kindest thing that God can do is remind us that it's not all about us. That his plan for our life is much bigger than our life. It involves a legacy. It involves something much bigger than we could ever see. That, that's what you are doing right now. You are investing in the legacy of faithfulness that's going to be passed on from generation to generation. I love you. And that's why I will tell you, Reality Carpinteria, it is not all about you. It's about what God wants to do through you. And then finally, you are not alone. I, I, I couldn't say any more simple. And it may be one of the most profound things we're going to hear today. You are not alone, friend. You're just not alone. You're not. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. When you feel alone, when you feel isolated, when you feel like it's just you left, you have to remember the family that God has brought you into the work that God is doing outside of your, your vision, what you can see. 
And right now, our, it feels like our worlds are just getting narrower and narrower and narrower and smaller and smaller and so confined. But what we need to remember is that God's work has not ceased. When restrictions increase, God is not restricted. In fact, when the pressure's turned up, the kingdom of God thrives. We ain't seen nothing yet. We ain't seen nothing yet. And I believe that God is at work to bring more men and more women and more children into his family in a season where it seems least likely to happen. And so we as a church, God's church, resolve, we are not waiting for things to return to normal to get after it. This is a season where God desires to display his glory and to redeem for eternity. Let me conclude with this. God is strengthening you. God is strengthening you. Will, Will you receive it? God is speaking to you. Will you listen? And God is sending you. Will you go? Will you go? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you meet us in our despair. You meet us in our pit of self-loathing and you draw us out with truth and you send us back with power. I can only speak for myself, Lord, but I have been filled with so much self-loathing this year. So many thoughts of it's just me that knows and so many wrong expectations for what you should be and shouldn't be, what you should do and shouldn't do. And I thank you, Lord, for how you, through this passage, have drawn me out. And I pray, Lord, today would be a day where you're drawing men and women out of despair, out of overwhelm, out of fear. Thank you, Lord, that those same words come to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Arise. Let us stand and live and breathe and minister in the power of Christ's resurrection. I pray blessing over this church, Lord. I pray for many, many fruitful years to come. I pray, Lord, that you continue to to stir and to grow this legacy of faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.